Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacket Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hello again and welcome to episode 142 of the SCO Show, proudly a part of the Pat's Pulpit Podcast Network and brought to you by the great folks at SB Nation. My name is Mark Schofield, back in the big chair for today, Thursday, October 15th, 2020. We didn't have an early show this week because there was nothing to talk about. Patriots game obviously postponed to next Sunday due to another positive COVID-19 test, and we sort of roll with the punches. That's what we do in 2020. Uh, so we got a mailbag show today. Um, got a couple of questions here that we're going to get to, um, talk about some running back stuff, some quarterback stuff, all that good stuff. Before we do anything, though, your usual cavalcade of reminders. Do follow along with the hijinks on Twitter, at Mark Schofield. Check out the work at a variety of places. USA Today, Touchdown Wire, Matt Waldman's Rookie Scouting Portfolio, not one, not two, but three. SB Nation websites, Big Blue View, Bleeding Green Nation, and of course at Pat's Pulpit. I do want to promote the usual stuff that I'm doing over at Touchdown Wire. I got a couple tent pole pieces each week. Overreaction Index, where I look at some of the hot takes that are coming out of the weekend's action. Schofield's QB Camp, where I take some of the videos that I've been doing and put those together. The five most notable quarterback performances each week. Again, the easiest way to follow along with all that is on Twitter. At Mark Schoolfield. Let's get to your questions right now. The first one comes to comes to us from NES Sports, who is at NES PORTS52 and NES Sports52. Why aren't the Patriots throwing the ball to Devin CSC? It's a massive question. It's a massive question. But I think the answer is simply this. Making the leap from college to the pros as a tight end. Maybe perhaps other than quarterback might be the toughest transition that offensive players face. Because one of the things that the college game does well with respect to the tight end position is let guys do what they do. Let guys function in a role that is comfortable for them. The college game can be so specialized that you might have your pure block in tight end, your move tight end, your inline tight end, your flex type tight end, and your big slot type tight end. And they might all see action based on what you're doing on a given play, a given drive, a given series, a given game, whatever. Now the problem with that becomes when those guys make the leap to the NFL, now they're asked to put their hand in the dirt, you know, 10 plays on a drive and block for six of them in the run game. It's a transition for them. And when they're asked to put their hand in the dirt, chip a defensive end, and then run an option route where you're reading the, 
the coverage and making a decision based on the coverage, it's a transition for them. And it's tough to do that in a normal year with rookie minicamp and OTAs and training camp and preseason games. It's even tougher when you don't get that. So I think more than anything else, they're just not comfortable with these guys yet. And then you function in the fact that it's a new passing game. It's a perhaps more vertical passing game with Cam Newton. And there haven't been a ton of opportunities for tight ends this year. And the opportunities that are there, they're going to Ryan Izzo. So I think, you know, if you're approaching it from a fantasy perspective, I know a lot of people in the fantasy community were excited about Devon CSE. You might need some patience. Hopefully... You know, if you've got Devon CSC shares, it's dynasty format and it's not redraft. But if it's redraft, you might want to cut bait because I don't see this changing anytime soon. Next question comes to us from my boy Bill Rossetti, who is at Bill underscore Rossetti on Twitter. Bill just recently, he's been a lot of different places. Um, now he's over at Sports Illustrated covering the Panthers. He also hosts the Locked On Panthers podcast, writes for the Bengals Wire, 4 for 4 football. Bill does a ton of work. Um, and he asks, there's obviously a lot of speculation on Le'Veon Bell to the Patriots, but did Damian Harris show you enough last week that you think they might trust him more going forward? And how does Sony Michelle fit into all this? And I'm going to fold in a question from John Cockrell who is at PatSox23, P-A-T-S-O-X-2-3. Would the solid state of the Patriots running back room, even with Sody Michelle currently on IR, preclude Bill Belichick from taking a flyer on Le'Veon, or is that 8 million 2021 figure a deal breaker for him? In other words, is Bell talented enough for Belichick to sign him just because he's talented? So I kind of wanted to fold those together and just talk running back room for a minute here. Because it remains the toughest position group in the New England offense to predict week to week, down to down, year to year, because so much of it is matchup based. And I think we'll deal with the Le'Veon Bell part of this first. I would be stunned if I found out that Le'Veon Bell was now a New England Patriot. And I do think that part of it is that 8 million figure. Now, the Patriots do have cap space, but do you want to sink 8 million into a running back that took a year off, didn't quite have it work out in New York, almost got beaten out for a spot by the ageless wonder of Frank Gore, and you're adding him to a position group where you've got depth. There's The pieces don't quite add up for me. The value added doesn't seem to be there because let's say Bill Belichick is looked, is looked at the film and you know he has spoken highly of Bell in the past. Let's say he says, okay, he's still talented enough. What can he do for us? Well, what situation does he add value over and above the guys you already have that makes it worth taking on that figure? So I think the financial aspect to it almost makes it a deal breaker. But then when you look at what you've gotten so far from James White, from Rex Burkhead, who I think has played extremely well, we kind of saw that one coming, given his outside zone, wide zone ability, how that might mesh with Cam Newton, what he brings to the table. And then as Bill Rossetti points out, what you just saw from Damian Harris, and yes, Sony Michelle lingering in the winds on IR, I think Harris has shown you 
some ability to be an inside-outside kind of guy in both outside zone and gap power stuff. Matt Waldman did a great video on Damian Harris. I'd invite people to check out. Showed how he might have even left some yards on the field. And so I think you add all this together, it doesn't make sense to really take on Le'Veon Bell. As talented as he is, you... You're talking about a position group of strength. There are other positions which we will get to where it probably makes more sense to make an addition. One more set of questions before we get to the break here. This comes to us from FW, who is on Twitter, at Futile War, F-U-T-I-L-E-W-A-R on the Bird app. First question, do Pats still need help at the outside linebacker position, or are they fine covering that up with safeties in the box? And... First of all, it's a fascinating question because similar to running back, you know, figuring out how Bill Beck, Bill Belichick and Steve Belichick are going to sort of scheme up things defensively from week to week is fascinating to think about. It's also fascinating in the bigger context of the offensive evolution we're living in and how defenses are sort of adjusting to that. But I do think that they like what they've got in John Simon, in Chase Winovich, with, yes, Anthony Jennings, with Cash Malua, they kind of like that group. And I think particularly with what they're getting from Simon and with what they're getting from Chase Winovich, I think there is reason to be excited. I think John Simon is an underrated part of this defense. I think he's a technically sound player. I love the way he sets the edge. Patriots fans have often clamored for somebody to be an edge-setter type player. Simon's that. So I think they're excited about him. Chase Winovich has done some really nice things in terms of getting after the passer. And so I think those edge-type guys, they're okay with. In terms of more off-ball linebacker play, you've seen some of that from Jennings. You've seen some of that from Malua. And I do think that they are kind of content with going with these sub-packages and using guys like Adrian Phillips and Kyle Duggar in that sort of hybrid joker-type role where you have the ability to... Stay gap sound against the run, even from a three-man front when you bring those guys down into the box, but they have the athleticism to run with running backs and tight ends. You know, the Patriots, in terms of sort of organizational philosophy, they are so centered on matchups, and um, particularly when they have the ball, exploiting favorable matchups. And so I think, you know, they're comfortable with having safeties down in the box, and If you think about the teams they have played, like Kansas City, the teams they will play, like Baltimore, you know, I I think they still want to have that flexibility. Now, Baltimore is a bit tricky, you know, because they use so many 12 and 13 personnel groupings with two or three tight ends, where you might say you'd like to see them at least have some bigger bodies. You know, a couple of times last year, they went with five linebackers at times. Now, you could still have that in some semblance with the safeties, but safeties taking on tight ends in the run game as blockers, that's sometimes a bit of a mismatch. And so when you get to that game, that Baltimore game, that's when you might see guys like Jennings and Kashmalua, and I know I've butchered his name like three times. You might see more of them to sort of match up with what Baltimore does in the run game. But I think the roster flexibility they've built themselves right now is kind of where they want to be. Now, the the second part to the question here, realistic wish list for a wide receiver trade target at the deadline. 
I think that's the more fascinating thing to think about. Uh, I think the name that floats in everybody's mind right now is A.J. Green. And that begs the question, what can A.J. Green still do? I think if you watch A.J. Green on film, when he's not on the sideline sort of asking to be traded, in a sense, he can still play. He can still run routes well. He can still get separation. The problem is he's probably best as a big slot type player. I did a podcast with Matt Waldman Wednesday afternoon, and we actually had this discussion, and Matt basically said, you know, I think if you have a chance to acquire him and use him as more of a big slot type guy, you'll be happy with what you get. Now, is there such a role in New England? Maybe. You know, if you look at Damian Bird as a boundary type guy and you look at Nikhil Harry as perhaps a boundary type guy, even though they've done some slot stuff with him. And then you look at Julian Edelman. You know, I think there's a way to carve out some snaps for A.J. Green. So Green would be certainly intriguing. And I think that could fit. You know, another name, a guy that hasn't quite worked out is Curtis Samuel. He hasn't quite worked out in Carolina. They like some of the production they're getting from some of the other guys in their locker room right now. And I think, especially Robbie Anderson, who's been fantastic. I think that's a situation where he might sort of be on the outside looking in. If not him, a guy that I've always liked is Seth Roberts. And I know he is also more of a pure slot guy. But those two Carolina Panthers receivers are extremely interesting to me. Both Samuel and Seth Roberts. So those are some names that I'd watch. But A.J. Green is obviously the one that people are going to be sort of excited about. Uh, a final name that I will mention, just because he's gotten, it seems like he's been sort of iced out in a sense. Maybe it's because of the emergence of Darnell Mooney and how they use Cordero Patterson, how they still use some two tight end packages, even though I don't think their tight end room is great. But that's Anthony Miller, who is, again, more of a slot type guy. I really liked him coming out of college. Second round draft pick out of Memphis. But since he's been sort of not used as much as I'd like to see, you know, if I'm a Bears fan, that's a situation where you might be able to get somebody that could step in and really produce for you. I think he's a very good route runner. You know, when you're talking about how much he's, how many, how much he's seen in terms of snaps, just 51%. You know, that's third on the team. You know, both Anderson and Mooney have seen more snaps as the wide receivers part than he has. And so that's another name I'd throw in there. But there's just some wide receivers and some thoughts about perhaps making a move at wideout. Up next, the second half of this show, we're going to talk some other stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about the depth class. I mean, excuse me, the draft class from 2019, how we feel about that. Um, some stuff to do with Cam Newton. And a little bit from the rule book. That's ahead here in episode 142 of The Sco Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Cars.com. With over 2 million vehicles and 50,000 more added every day, Cars.com will match you with the perfect car for you, your budget, your life, your style. And if you're ready to say goodbye to your current car, Cars.com will get you an instant offer to cash it in. Just start by entering your license plate and get matched with a local dealer who will write you the check. So whether you're looking to buy or sell, just go to cars.com. It's magical. 
Mark Schofield back with you now on episode 142 of the SCO Show. And we're going to talk a couple of different things here before we close this out. First question comes to us from NMAC. And you can find him on Twitter. He is on Twitter at reluctant underscore trade. And he asks, what grade would you now put on the 2019 draft class? Is it surprising or disappointing that the 2020 offensive line picks have jumped the 2019 picks in the depth chart? And... You know, I am always of the mind that you got to give guys three years, whether it's quarterbacks or any position. It's always early. And I know we all do it. I do it. I have to do it. Early draft grades and things like that. We do, over at USA Today, we did draft draft grades each night. And I will say, I wasn't excited about the Cowboys' second night, and I got ridiculed for that. But maybe I was right. I'm just saying. But when you look at these past two draft cycles, you look at their day one and day two picks, right? Nikhil Harry, Juwan Williams, Chase Winovich, Damian Harris, Yarni Kajust. Not overjoyed, perhaps, I guess is the best way of saying about that. But Chase Winovich has produced. Damian Harris is starting to get some run. I think Juwan Williams has a role on this team. People will point to Nikhil Harry, particularly if guys like DK Metcalf keep tearing up the league. I think when you get into the day three picks for Holt, you'd like to see a bit more from him. Stidham. Jury's obviously still out there. Brian Coward has done some things, although now he has a COVID positive test. Jake Bailey was a great pick. You know, to get a punter, he's been a huge part of their special teams unit. So, I mean... In terms of it getting a grade, I'd say still it's incomplete because we don't know. But if I'm forced to put a grade on it, I'd say maybe B minus, C plus. Trending towards the upper part of that just because you're starting to see more from Winovich, from Harris, you know, and even from Nikhil Harry. And Williams has carved out a bigger role than he had last year. But I do think it's more incomplete. Am I surprised that guys like Justin Heron and Michael Wenu? have sort of leapfrogged over or kajused over a Froholt. That is, I think, surprising. Although those were very solid to good prospects. I know a lot of people were in Michael Owenu's corner. I think John Ledyard was one. Um, some others were as well. They were very excited about it. I know he was a huge Slack channel, John Limaracas and everybody in there. They were big fans of his. So I think in a sense, it's not that surprising just because there were people that particularly liked a window. Heron's a bit more surprising to me just because I would have thought that a Yanni Kajust might have gotten the nod at a swing tackle role before him. But guy's getting starts now. So um, that's pretty impressive. Next question comes to us from Andrew, who is at SCAL Speaks, SCAL Speaks on Twitter. What unique looks, read options, sweeps, pitches, could we see utilizing Cam's skill set that we haven't seen yet? How can the plays we've seen so far evolve over time? And I think in terms of looks, they haven't, unless I've missed it, and I've actually searched through my notes too, they haven't done a lot of speed option stuff. Like there was one play, I think it was Seattle, where there was a pitch um, that that play got blown up, and maybe that's the reason why they haven't returned to it. But there are some sort of speed option looks where you're not really reading anybody. It's just you take the snap, 
gun pistol. You press the edge as a quarterback. If you can keep it, you do. Otherwise, you just pitch it. Um, they haven't done it outside of the one example, which I think was the Seattle game. Um, so that's one thing that they haven't done. In terms of some other stuff, they've really shown you most, I think, of what you can do. The, the only other thing where I'd say they haven't done as much as I expected was, you know, sometimes when you have these zone read plays, you've got what we call the horizontal stretch and the vertical stretch. They've done a lot where Cam is the vertical stretch. So he's potentially handing it off on an outside zone, wide zone, and he can keep it and come inside. They haven't done as much where they flip that, where he's got the potential to keep it around the edge and the vertical part, that vertical stretch is the running back going north-south. So I'd like to see a little bit more of that. In terms of how can these plays evolve over time, I think the most traditional way is the RPO play-action element, number one. You know, you show these zone read looks all the time, get the running back going north-south, then you pull it and throw off of it. I think that's the easiest and cleanest way that these can evolve. But I'm always an old-school flex bone guy. I was recruited to run a flex bone offense in college. It just so happened that they scrapped it after my freshman year and went to a pro-style offense, which is when I switched to wide receiver and got bounced around. But in an in a alternate universe... I was a multiple-year starting quarterback in a flexbone option option offense, which would have been my dream. And as such, I, I start thinking about speed option, read option, and drop back plays off of that, where you show speed option, and then you retreat into the pocket and throw it. Everything is showing the defense option, option, option. You're trying to get to the edge. You're trying to fit your gap fits and all that stuff. And then you get a post route thrown over your head. Like it's no surprise to people that when I dusted off, or it should be no surprise to people that when I dusted off my old copy of NCA thirteen, when I got my hands on my old PS three, I did what I always do, which is start a new dynasty using Navy and running the flex bone. That's what I do. That's the offense that I love. And so I think that that's a way you could start evolving some of these plays where you've got these option elements and they really become play action of their own. It's not even like you have to fake a handoff. Like you press the edge as a quarterback, then you step back and you've got a moving pocket in a sense. You've shown them play action with a potential run and then you're throwing the ball. And so that's one way I think they could sort of evolve these plays. Another way to do it is just more of your standard RPO type stuff whether it's a second or a third level RPO read. And yes, there are third level RPO reads where you're showing run and you're actually reading the safety. You know, if a safety comes down a couple of steps, you're throwing a post route over his head. And again, RPO is really just a, another variation of high-low concepts and play-action concepts, if you want to think about it more conceptually. Uh, but those are ways that I think this offense sort of can evolve. Last question, we're going to dive into the rule book for a second here. And this question comes to us from good friend Rodrigo Morales, who is at K Porson at Q-U-E-P-O-R-C-I-O-N on the Bird app. And he asks, when the quarterback is running and he throws the ball, a lot of times it's a penalty because there wasn't a, a receiver around. What is the rule to know if there was a receiver around or not? Do you count yards close to the ball or how do you do it? So he's asking... About Rule 8, Section 2, 
intentional grounded. And we start with the letter of the law. I do that not just because I'm a lawyer, but I do believe that, unless I'm mistaken, our friend Rodrigo is a barrister or a solicitor or an attorney, counselor in Brazil, I believe. I might have that wrong. And you start with the rule. And the rule reads as follows. It is a foul for intentional grounding if a passer facing an imminent loss of yardage because of pressure from the defense throws a forward pass without a realistic chance of completion. A realistic chance of completion is defined as a pass that is thrown in the direction of and lands in the vicinity of an originally eligible receiver. So you need a couple of things here for intentional grounding. You need to be facing an imminent loss of yardage, right? Because of And because of pressure from the defense. So if you just drop back and nobody's open and there's absolutely no pressure on you and you sail a throw, it's not intentional grounding because you are not facing an imminent loss of yardage because of pressure from a defense. Now, let's say you get that element. You're getting that pressure. And then you just take the easiest and cleanest example, spike the football. You say, oh, it's an incompletion, right? No. That's intentional grounding because there is not... A, an eligible receiver in the vicinity of that. Now, if there's a running back and you spike the ball at his feet, then you can say at least there's a realistic chance that he could have caught that and you could possibly avoid the intentional ground. And however, you would have to be inside the pocket because the rules change when you get outside the pocket. Intentional grounded will not be called when a passer who is outside or has been outside the tackle box throws a forward pass that lands at or beyond the line of scrimmage, even if no players have a chance to catch the ball, including when the ball lands out of bounds over the sideline or end line. So if you get pressured, you roll out, then you even roll back into the pocket, you can throw it wherever. You're not getting called for intentional grounded. So it really comes down to you're in the pocket and you make a throw does the person you throw it towards have a reasonable, realistic chance of catching the football? Again, a realistic chance of completion is defined as a pass that is thrown in the direction of and lands in the vicinity of an originally eligible receiver. So say you throw a pass and it lands within five yards of somebody. Is that realistic? Yeah, probably. They could dive. They could jump. Whatever. Say you throw a pass and it lands 15 yards away from somebody. Probably not. It has to be sort of this reasonable, realistic chance of completion. Now, the problem is it's one of those Justice Potter Stewart, you know it when you see it, right? You can't just say five yards, three yards, two yards, three feet. It's one of those case-by-case things, which as an attorney, Rodrigo is probably rolling his eyes at because that's the last thing you want to hear. You'd like it to be neat and clean, but there are a lot of moving parts here. But that's the intentional grounding rule. I hope that made sense. If not, Rodrigo, shoot me a DM. I'll try to explain it better. Actually, if you Google it, you will get the rule right from the NFL website, operations.nfl.com, and they have like a minute and a half video breaking it down, which is probably what I should have just told you to do. But friends, that will do it for today. I will be back post-game, hopefully for a glorious victory show. Until then, stay safe. Check in on your neighbors. Check in on your loved ones. Wash those hands. And when you do, sing along and bless those Patriots reigns down in Foxborough.